I think sometimes a few words becomes longer than you. So who knows? But at this point, I think it's only a few words. Um, to say about something that is quite essential to really understanding what the Buddha was talking about. And then you can reflect on it, take it home with you. If it's something that interests you, we can talk more about it tonight. If not, um, you can bring up whatever you like about your own practice. Are there any people here who are totally new to this practice? Um, those of you who are new, are you totally new to meditation period, to practicing meditation? You've done so? Okay. Some of you probably recall uh, a saying attributed to Jesus. that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to get to heaven. And that came out of a dialogue, and it had to do with a rich young man who wanted to follow Jesus, but when challenged, couldn't give up all of his money, which is what Jesus said. So just get rid of it and follow me. So in one sense, the outer level, that's what it meant. Uh, And so some people think that it means, well, if you're rich, you're already spiritually disqualified. Now, how could that be? Does that mean that only poor people can become enlightened? The world would be crawling with enlightened people if that were the case. Just bodhisattvas and Buddhas all over the place. But apparently that's not so. The inner meaning of it is not, not really rich in money, even though having a lot of money can if related to incorrectly, become a huge problem and, of course, block you from from freedom. Uh, But the richness that's talked about and which has direct parallel in the Buddha's teaching has to do with the richness of the ego. Or it's the, if your ego has a big fat bank account, probably you won't be able to get into heaven. You You have to travel very light. But it has nothing to do with the literal amount of money that you have it because it has to do with the relationship of you to everything. Um, So what? What does that have to do with our own practice here? I feel that a certain very basic point really needs to be clarified and so those of you who are regulars, you're probably going to have to hear this again and again until you get sick of it or even better, you start doing it. <laughs> then I'll shut up. Um, and without understanding it, there's a, a lot of uh, really a less than clear understanding of what the Buddha had in mind, particularly about suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, a few weeks or months ago, someone gave a talk here entitled Suffering and the End of Suffering, which is what the Buddha talks about. So that's, what he, that's why the Buddha has come. The Buddha's dispensation is about that, about suffering and the end of suffering. And so someone uh, came up to me later on who was a bit annoyed, even verging on anger, very new, didn't really understand this practice, but said, I thought I'd heard that Vipassana was kind of free of superstition and magic and ritual and ceremony that was really the real thing, you know, just 
that it was uh, not an insult to my intelligence. And here I see even the title of the talk and I was just furious. That is, suffering and the end of suffering. How could that possibly be? You mean to say that if you meditate, you'll never suffer anymore? Uh, didn't the Buddha die from a physical ailment? Uh, didn't he get hurt and sick sometimes? Don't any of the enlightened people have pains in their body or that, you know, sickness and so forth? Of course. And doesn't that hurt? Definitely. I'm sure. I, without having to check with the Buddha, how could it not hurt? And if that was so, how would it be any different than what we already know? That is, everyone in this room, let's say the, the typical exp- uh, way in which this phrase is brought in is it has to do with birth, aging, sickness, and death. Well, do you really have to study very hard or meditate to understand that there's, that there's a great deal of suffering that comes with that? Every human being knows that. So what has the Buddha brought for us that's distinctive? Why, are we, uh, why has this teaching had vitality for almost 2,600 years? Why? What is it? Uh, and so I think what we have to do is sharpen our understanding of the kind of suffering that is distinctive and that this practice is designed to end. There is definitely a kind of suffering that the Buddha is saying can come to an end. But he's not saying that if you have rheumatism, it won't hurt you because you're meditating. That person was right. If they thought that that that's what we're saying, that would be silly. Or that if you fall down and hurt yourself, it won't hurt because you've been on a lot of three-month retreats, you know, or even following your breath a lot. It'll still hurt. Or if you eat food that's poisoned, uh, your stomach has it. There's a lawfulness in nature, and you'll react. The body will react. Um, in order to understand uh, the, the thrust of what the Buddha was getting at, you have to understand something called the five khandhas, or those of you who have read it in, in Sanskrit, skandhas. It's the same thing. And I'm just going to speak very briefly about it tonight. Maybe some other time we can go into it in more depth. But just to give you the beginnings of an understanding of it so you can see what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about suffering and the end of suffering. The five khandhas, or you could call them the five aggregates of psycho, the five psychophysical aggregates. They're kind of the elements that compose a human being, the mind-body process in the language that we use more today. And they're often referred to as the uh, five aggregates of attachment. It sort of comes together. Now, these five components or elements of a, of a human, each one of us is made up of it, it's, is the Buddha's way of looking at a person to try to understand more clearly what's happening. And all five are interrelated. The first one is Rupa Kanda, and that simply is the body. There's a physical body. Each one of us has a physical body, nervous system, circulation, brain, so forth. And that's one uh, essential aspect of a person, of a being. The second has to do uh, with Vedana Kanda, which means feeling. That is, in addition to each one of us having a body, we feel a great deal. Now, this is not exactly the same as emotion. Feeling, we've now moved into mental events. Rupa Kanda is the body. That's physicality. 
once we get into Vedana or feeling, that is a kind of uh, instantaneous, very, very rapid mental reaction to what happens to us as we come in contact with the world through our sense doors. A sound comes in and very quickly there is actually a gap. As you get very quiet, you can feel it. There's contact, or is it, assuming the ear works and the eye works and so forth. There's contact, and then there's very quickly a feeling of it either being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And it can be of varying intensities. It can be extraordinarily pleasant, blissful, ecstatic. It can be mildly unpleasant. It can be excruciatingly painful. And so there's that range. Now that is going on all day long. Right now, the the rupa, uh, rupa kanda, your body is seated in a certain position. And as you know, those of you who were sitting before this, uh, there were some feelings that were unpleasant for you. They were just like that. Emotion, as we think of it in Western uh, psychology and philosophy and, and in literature and so forth, is more what comes later. And we'll get to that. sort of built up around these feelings. The feelings is the immediate response in the body or through all the sense doors because anything that comes through a sense door, it will be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral and it's going on all day long. And we have strong reactions. We like it when, when what we hear and what we see and what we smell, what we touch and what the kinds of thoughts the mind has, we like it when it's, it's a pleasant feeling. And when it isn't, we really try to get away from it or destroy it. When it's neutral, there's a tendency to go into boredom or confusion, to not really even know anything's happening. It's as if we're not alive in that moment because we're not either feeling something pleasant or unpleasant. So that's the second, Vedana, Kanda. We have a body, we have feelings. And one of the best ways to learn it is to see the feelings that come up in a body. They're separate. You can see the difference. For example, if you, let's say, a part of your, let's say your knee does not hurt right now. So, <clears throat> perhaps there's the, the feeling in the body, the Rupa Kanda's feeling at this moment is neutral. But in a few, let's say, minutes, if you keep sitting this way or a half an hour, at a certain point, suddenly the feelings will change and be unpleasant. There'll be a a cutting or, or a dull ache or something, at which point the mind will try to change its position or want to change its position. But you've heard a good, yo- good yogis don't move, which is not necessarily true, but I know you've heard that. And so you'll stay there, sitting in excruciating pain, but feeling wonderful about it. <laughs> Some kind of minor triumph of the will. So we know that the knee at one point didn't have a painful feeling and then at a certain point it did have it. So the body is different from these feelings. Remember, the feelings is primarily a mental event. Uh, then we have we move on and we come to sanya kanda, a very important one. Uh, it's often translated as perception, which may not be the best word for it, but so far I haven't been able to come up with anything better, so let's stay with it. Perception here... Um, has to do with the way in which we regard what happens to us. We All day long also, we are regarding things as being this or that. So let's say if we use our very simple 
example, uh, the body has, let's say, uh, suddenly the feeling is uh, strongly unpleasant, you could say even painful, then uh, just the word painful, that's, we're already into sanya. In other words, it labels things all day long. Oh, this is painful. So sanya's job is kind of to discriminate what's happening. Like, to re- you know, a friend walks down the street. How do you know that that's your friend? Is something in memory. You remember it, and then you're able to know, friend, that's whoever. It's to be able to recognize the environment so that you can negotiate it. You can, you know, drive up this street and then walk down that street. And it's the way in which we piece together reality and can tell one thing from another. So we keep regarding things as being this or that. Another way to remember it, it has a lot to do with labeling. We kind of name things, this or that. And so once you name those sensations, let's say it's whatever it is, painful. Now remember, painful is just a word. So when Sanya puts that name on it, oh, I recognize this. This is not pleasant. This hurts. Already, we're already trouble already. You know, as soon as you name it painful, uh, by and large, unless you know that you've had some special training or your job in some way, uh, already attachments there, already aversion is there. Because painful is 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 not a neutral thing. We don't like pain, and so once we name it that, in addition to whatever it is. We're now kind of giving it some character. We're coloring it in. Color this in unpleasant. And if we name it, it becomes a little bit more that way. Now, one interesting thing about Sanya, it's an interesting dilemma that we have about it. Very, very often, almost always, it's almost equivalent with attachment. That is, all day long, as we name something, we already have a view and opinion about it. You know, just just putting a name tag on someone, you know, is already, attachment is already born in it. Because a lot of these names have grown up out of our experience of having good times and bad times and in-between times. And so often just to name someone as, oh, there goes an attractive person, it's already, just to say that it's attractive, it would be a rare person who could see it as just attractiveness without something else following along, you know, wanting it or wanting to look at it longer or wanting to possess it. So these names are not inconsequential and yet we can't do without Sanya in order to live as uh, human beings in a human community uh, so that we can communicate with each other. We have to have these names, most of which we agree upon, at least roughly. Okay, so we have this body. The body has uh, not only the body, but the body uh, has feelings. Uh, all the senses uh, have feelings. And then, Sanya, we regard these, everything that's happened so far, we regard it in one way or another by putting a name on it. We discriminate it. We <coughs> separate it out from all else. This is the meditation center. So that you, your behavior, you have already you know You'd have to be quiet here, especially if it's your first time. You know, you already feel, like, oh yeah, this place to be quiet. Okay. Then we go to the next kanda, which is sankara kanda, which is often translated as mental formations. And now the richness of the mind is starting to come into play, thinking and concoctions. That is, the mind is this wonderful, almost endless uh, motion picture-producing machine. You know, it just 
it has complete license to just make up whatever it wants to about, often about what has just been named. So let's say Sanya names it. This is pain. We have a body. Let's say there's some unpleasant sensations. Sanya labels it, oh, this is excruciating pain. Once it gets named that, then the mental formations or sankara kanda, uh, the mind then makes up the concocts. It fashions all kinds of stories about, oh, uh, gangrene's going to send in. They're going to have to rush me to, uh, to uh, Cambridge City Hospital. Uh, what am I doing here? Why do I even bother to come here? I hate meditation anyway. Uh, and before you know it, you're out the door or your mind is out the door. But you're too embarrassed, so you don't leave. Okay. But, but all of the concoctions, in other words, the, the mind, once it names something, that is sort of, it's a little bit like a book, you know, we talk about you pushed my button. Once there's a certain name, then following in on it is incredible possibilities of interesting stories. Some not so interesting and some rather tiring because we have to hear it over and over again. In other words, the mind will then concoct something about what it's just regarded as being such and such, which came out of what our experience was, which was a feeling of either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And a lot of that comes out of the fact that we have a body. If we didn't have this body, no trouble. But we have this body. Big trouble, right? Okay. You have a body, problems. No matter how much yoga, how much Tai Chi, no matter how often you shop at Bread and Circus. And then finally, the, the fifth kanda has to do with uh, vijnana kanda, which is consciousness. That's that in us which, when something meets a sense organ, it's that which knows it. So let's say uh, a sound comes. You hear the sound of the bell. Ear consciousness. Something hears that sound. <coughs> Is it pleasant? Someone answer. Is it pleasant? Okay. Vedana. See, feelings have started. If suddenly the mind makes up, boy, I'd like to have a bell like that. Where do you buy it? You know, is that Japanese or is that Korean or Cambodian? You know, then you got, the, then the storyline is beginning. Then it's Sankara. But it, the consciousness had, had a register. And it registered in the body. And then you, we, and then the whole thing develops. Well, this is going on all day long. Okay, now, this is a, a brief introduction to it's essential to understand Buddhism or the, te- the, the teachings of the Buddha. If you have a working understanding of the five khandhas, a lot of what you read will make sense to you. If you don't, uh, it'll take a little longer. And it's very practical. Uh, it's very practical to help you understand your own life. Now, okay, now let's back, go back to what was Jesus talking about? Like... Where does that have? What is it? being a rich person can't get into heaven? What does that have to do with the five khandhas? I don't know. Maybe nothing, but it's it came to mind. I, I think there's something. I hope. When you have to pinch hit for somebody, sometimes you know you have to. You don't know what's going to come up. Yeah. In other words, that means that some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Sal Kun is not here tonight, and so I've been pressed into service. What the, the essence of the Buddha's teaching, and if you can remember this, it'll be very, very helpful. When the Buddha is saying that what he is bringing to us is a way of recognizing, understanding suffering, there is suffering, understanding it, and a way of letting go of suffering, 
the most significant aspect of what he's talking about has to do with what we do to these five khandhas. That is, in and of themselves, it's the process of being alive. There is a life, it's a life process. You know, there's an alive body which has feelings. There's a mind which makes up labels about what's happening to it. There, the, the mind also has this rich capacity. Some of what Sankara makes up about what's happening is very intelligent and useful. It's, I don't mean that it's all a waste. And of course, there's this beautiful ability to be conscious of what's happening. If we didn't have that, uh, we wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't be sentient. Mindfulness itself is an expression of that. It's one uh, derivative of that basic ability to know what's, com- what's affecting us through the sense doors. Okay, so that in and of itself, that's the life process. Trouble comes in, the suffering that the Buddha is talking about, the distinctive kind of suffering that we can do something about. If you have arthritis, assuming that you've done all you can do physically about it, certainly that's painful. And let's say there's nothing more you can do, you know, you've taken cider vinegar and fasted and all the rest of it, then what's left, it will be, uh, it will be painful. But it doesn't have to be torment. There's a very big difference. I'm using torment now to show you what happens when suddenly any one or all of those five khandhas become, uh, there's an attachment of me and mine to them. Or this is my body. Now it's suddenly switched from it being a life process of a body, a body that breathes and uh, does all the things that bodies do. Now suddenly something in us claims it identifies with it and it makes a self out of it. This body is me. That's one of the main ones. Or, somewhat related to it, this body belongs to me. It's mine. Now, in a manner of speaking, in terms of conventionally, conventional speech, that's sure. You know, that's, it's true. But in a profound way, we aren't the body. It isn't us. Nor do we own it. It's a delusion that we do. Now, if you are deluded in that way, and all human beings are to begin with, then what happens is, whatever happens to the body, in addition to that, because of the attachment that we have to the body, because of this tendency to build a self out of it, then we enter into torment. The body is not tall enough. You know, you look at all the ads or the movie stars, and they all seem to be taller than you. Or it's too tall, you know. Uh, it's too tall, everyone around, so you start walking around like this so that you can fit in. You know, in high school it happens to a lot of tall people. They're like that, often for the rest of their lives because they don't want to stick out. They only stick out more, you know, by bending over like that. But that's what happens. Perhaps the body weighs too much or it doesn't weigh enough. Or it's got the wrong skin color. Or it's too old. Or the features are not like Robert Redford or whoever or whatever it is, you know the body is an incredible field of torment. Now, what we're talking about now is not the natural process of a body. You know, that bodies have to be fed and cleansed and exercised and cared for and given rest. And even that itself, we know, is hard work. But what I'm talking about now in terms of torment is what we add on to having a body. Now, here I'm using having a body in just a way of communicating with you. And when we make a self out of the body, that means that whatever seems to happen to the body, how we think of our body, what we think other people think of our body, hits the me and mine 
In other words, if we've created a self, if we've used the self, the, the physical body, as the basis to convince ourselves that there is a me or mine that truly exists, then when there is that hurt, this is the hurt that's over and above just the pure physicality of the body, that torment is the distinctive kind of dukkha that the Buddha is talking about. And that one is not manufactured in Taiwan. That one's made in the mind, in our mind. We make it up all the time. Is everyone clear on this? You know, the, uh, probably the, the easiest things to sell in the world, the, the things that are most profitable, the easiest to sell, uh, are those things which have to do with caring for the body and making it attractive to look at. So the body, you know, can get on, it can move about. And also that, you know, all these lotions and creams and potions and... Uh, Masks and uh, you know endless oils and and uh, uh, all, everything you know what we're doing right is it only me? <laughs> we really put in a lot, good part. Our real job is I mean that's where we're working hard right. We put in a lot of hours. We don't get paid for it. Maybe some people do if they're distributing beauty products or something, but most of us are spending a lot of time maintaining the body and trying to make it look as pleasant as it can at least as we see it. And we're very sensitive to what happens to the body. A little gray hair pops up in the hair. It's, you know, it's like a little gray hair breaks through the scalp. Depressed. <laughs> Total depression. I'm, it's all over. You know, where did my life go? All that happened is the hair turned gray. That's all. Now, as the five khandas, in other words, uh, rupa khanda, all that's happened is that. Now, when we then take that gray hair as being self. You know, we see, uh, we see the handwritings on the wall. One gray hair means that soon there'll be two, and then three, before you know it, there'll be a head full of gray hair, and before you know it, there'll be no hair, because we'll be dead, right? Just, we see that. That's, okay, now that's, that's terrifying. I don't mean to be condescending, because we're all in this. We're, we're in it up to here. Okay, now that's torment. Now that torment can be let go of. That's what the Buddha is saying. Those who let go of it totally have a certain freedom. That's wonderful. But all of us, we're just ordinary people here. You know, we're not sitting in caves in the Himalayas or in a Buddhist in Wat somewhere or monasteries devoting our lives or being monks or nuns. But each and every one of us in this room can loosen the tie to the body dramatically. There's just no question about it. Many people just like us are doing it right now so that we take care of the body. We do feed it. We wash it. We take it to the hospital if it needs care. We can even make it attractive. It's not that we have to, oh, he's right. And so now I won't use any masks, no makeup. Uh, I won't comb my hair. I'll never wash. <laughs> You're just as imprisoned. That's not the point. You can care for the body and make it look attractive. It's, it's nice so that we all, are, you know, it's a, a brighter existence for everyone than if you're just walking around like that, all dreary and so. The key thing, again, isn't that. It's not even rubbing all the ointments and salves into the body. It's when we make it into self. It's my body. I am what this body looks like. So, everyone, so uh, the suffering that comes out of that uh, attachment of me and mine to that physical, to the Rupa Khanda, that's one form of torment. And it's something that can be remedied. 
And the only way to remedy it is through wisdom. And you can't really develop the level of intensity of wisdom that can remedy the problem unless the mind is sufficiently calm and steady. There is, we have samadhi, and we have our vipassana practice. And we're examining the body a lot. Now, if you can begin to see that there is a body and begin to... It's not that... Let's say you agree with what was just said. I don't know, but perhaps a few of you do agree. You can't... Just because you agree, it's not going to go away. The mind is still going to keep claiming the body as being self. All you have to do is be mindful when that happens. If you're mindful when that happens, you won't get bitten. You won't get burned by the, by the illusion of it being self. If you're not mindful, then the attachment happens, the equation happens, and there's torment, at least potentially. So it's more and more... I, it's great fun, you know, just watching how personal the mind takes everything about the body. Okay, then we move to feelings, Vedana. Same thing. You have a pleasant feeling. It's my pleasant feeling. I'm happy. I, have, I feel so good. But then the next moment, unpleasant feelings. I'm bummed out. I just, it's just awful. I'm awful. Why? I'm not a happy person. Everyone else around me must be having happy feelings all the time, but not me. I'm just an unhappy person with unhappy Vedana wherever I go. I don't think you use the word Vedana. Okay, again, once we build self out of it, that the particular feelings that happen, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral feelings, once the ego grasps hold of it and builds self out of it, then you have the potential for torment. For example, let's go back to the very, very humble thing that happens to all of us yogis time and time again. When you're sitting, and probably many of you already experienced it this evening, Sometimes, you know, let's say, did, any, did anyone's, uh, let's say, back or some part of the body hurt? Yeah, I just want everyone to know they're not alone. Yeah, please show of hands tonight while we were sitting. Look at that. Okay. Okay. Now, think while I'm speaking, if, if even for a moment or so, this happened. The fact that, let's say, the knee had, was, uh, let's say we could describe it as painful sensations or the lower back, or the neck, or whatever it was. Let's say that's a fact. That's actually happening. I'm not saying it's your imagination. But now, if the mind claims it and says, this is happening to me, or is this unpleasant feeling is happening to me, uh, it escalates. and it, becomes, it can become torment. One of the things that happens is we dip into memory. And all the other times that it was painful, and we associate with that. And then there's a fear of the future. My God, is this never going to stop? It just keeps getting worse, and I can't change my posture. I'm embarrassed. Everyone, you know, he's watching. He sees if I shift my posture. Posture marks it down a little book. <laughs> so suddenly, what let's say is a certain level of discomfort. Once it's claimed and made into a self. This is my pain. It's happening to me. There's a kind of self-pity that can come up. Did anyone experience any selfing go on around the physical pain? You did? Yeah. Okay, so that... Now, what the Buddha is saying is, he's not saying your knee doesn't hurt. He's not saying your lower back doesn't hurt. But what he's saying is, the attachment to to Vedana, Kanda, the attachment to those feelings, when that happens, then you have 
a kind of suffering or a kind of torment which has a remedy. The remedy is seeing through it so that we see that this is not self. This is a feel, an, an, uh, an impermanent feeling. It's unpleasant. It arises and it passes away. It arises because of certain causes and conditions. It doesn't belong to me. I don't own it. It doesn't belong to anyone else in the room either. If it belongs to anyone, it belongs to nature, as does the whole body. Does anything that we have really and truly belong to us? My mind. I doubt that. You know how much of that? My mind is made up of, my, of the ancestors' thoughts that went through my father and mother that were poured into my mind, and I'm speaking as if this is really me talking, but you know, I'm just like a, to some degree, like a, you know, a ventriloquist dummy. You know, it's like the culture is talking through me. Okay, so that if we claim that feeling, and I've just used a simple one, a bodily pain, when we have others, like uh, things emotional and so forth, can you imagine when we build a self out of it, then we have torment. Now, that is one of the profound meanings of what, when the Buddha is talking about suffering. He's not denying the pain, but here for the moment, can you see the difference between pain and torment? Pain is just a, a physiological, neurological, it can be probably described very easily. And then, because we grasp onto it, then we make something else which is quite painful for us. Okay, so now we move on to sanya, and you can see the, the direction I'm going in. I don't, don't want to go into too much detail. Sanya itself, the names, we get attached to names. The labels, we label something as such and such, and then of course we're stuck with it, because as mentioned, so often just naming something is already a prejudgment. It's already got attachment built into it. But the most profound way in which sanya is suffering, and in one sense this is a crucial aspect of our practice, is it sanya, which regards things as this or that, that itself regards self. In other words, the process of thoughts and feelings and images and bodily sensations that constantly flow, this process that is called us, sanya puts a label on it, says, that's Larry. That's Neil, you know, whoever, whoever you are. And that's me. Now, so that once you name it that, then you can understand what's happening. Once that particular discrimination is made, that this process, well, that's going on all over the place. And so we create, we contribute very strongly to creating this sense that there is a solid, enduring, substantial self to which everything is happening. Now, whether that's true or not, don't take it as a, an ideology or a belief. Investigate and see if that's so. What the Buddha is saying is that is the, the fundamental illusion that we human beings have and that's where the torment comes from. Because we make something that lacks selfhood, that is just an ongoing process and we create the illusion that there's something solid there which becomes seemingly, it becomes a standpoint from which everything happens, is viewed from, and is experienced from. Now, so Sanya, in addition to making labels about things and then having to suffer because those labels have to do with me and mine, it makes one of the the primary labels, the me and mine itself. That's me, that name, once we use it. Okay, then we go to, we move on to Sankara Kanda. mental formations. And if you remember, what that was described uh, as being was 
um, concocting, the mind fabricating, um, creating, making things. The mind has this endless, it has license to make up whatever it wants. It's shameless. There's nothing it can, it can just do whatever it damn pleases. Can it? Our minds can just, sometimes, especially on long retreats, when you hear what pours out of your mind, I mean, fortunately, there isn't a tape of that, you know, because this, what I'm giving you now is all cleaned up, you know, but can you imagine if the true stuff that's coming up from a typical human mind, well, we'd all be in, you know, some psychiatric hospital, probably for the criminally insane. I mean, just all the different things, the urges and, you know, I've heard testimonies of cannibalism and all kinds of other things that go on in our minds. You know, Adolf Hitler is there. Mother Teresa is there, too. But, you know, we like to present Mother Teresa up to the public, but uh, uh, poor Adolf, he has a bad press and we keep him down, you know. Okay, so Sankara has this ability to contrive and make up stuff about what's happening, and it's awfully convincing. And what it will do is con- concoct stories of, you know, our biography. You know, if you hear it clearly, a lot of times it's what we make up, you know, we, you meet a new person, and you know that. We all do that game we play where you tell me something about yourself and I tell you something about yourself and you tell me something about yourself and then, you know, little by little we up the ante and start saying things and it's as if this is the real accurate childhood. This is, I grew up here and this happened and I went into the army and, uh, you know, you know, but the versions of it change, you know. Mine do. I realize that they're kind of in the service of what's necessary in the present moment. So sort of our, our story takes on uh, the coloration that's fruitful. Let's be generous. Fruitful for what's <laughs> w- w- what's going on in the present moment, or it's just an out and out lie. Because Sankara can do that. You want me to lie? Sure. I'll, whatever you want. What kind of childhood did you want to have? I'll make it up. If you want it, this person to think you're interesting, and if I say that, they'll think you're interesting. Yeah, sure it is. Yes, I, I have a PhD and I went to law school and I was a nuclear physicist and a brain surgeon. <laughs> okay. So, there's a lot of room for what Sankara can do, you know, the mental formations. And a lot of suffering comes from that because it's, I think it's accurate to say that a lot of our life is not lived in actually in life. It's lived in some conceptual uh, universe that we keep creating with the mind. The Sankara keeps, uh, Sanya names it and then Sankara comes right in after it and gives it a storyline and makes up all kinds of stuff about it. And then we have to relate to it because we believe in it. You know, you make this particular story, then you have that story. And then we've got to get all kinds of different remedies and therapies and go to meditation classes and we've got to do all these things to cure ourselves of what our own mind made up about ourselves. A lot of hard work. It's very convoluted and complex. That's why, just go back to the breath sometimes, it's so simple and helpful. It's another way of saying, are you going to really take all that stuff so seriously? I'm not saying it has no truth, value, but so seriously, your story, over and over, really? You're not tired of it yet. Okay. Sankara, roll them, you know, and then all this stuff starts coming out again. Okay, so it's my story, my, my life, the life story, the collected works of Larry. <laughs> volume, we're up to about volume 40, volume 57 actually. Okay, how many volumes are you writing about yourself? 
you know, and, and giving it to people and to yourself and to therapists and meditation teachers. And no one seems to want to buy the movie rights, you know. <laughs> so it's apparently more interesting to each one of us than to anyone else. Even our close friends, oh no, not the, not the baby stories again, you know. Not the growing up in Brooklyn stories, please. Maybe our mother will still listen to it. Endlessly, to listen to our stories. So a lot of what meditation is about is cutting through all of that. And in the letting go of the attachment to that kanda is great freedom. And then finally, uh, vinyana kanda, that is consciousness itself. And even that we claim as being, in other words, I'm hearing, I'm seeing, I'm, I'm feeling that. I, 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 me, me, me. That's so that you see things. And I just saw that. And we're able to claim what we see and hear and smell. And even the self will make that into something. We'll claim it. The self, it wants, it just has no limits in terms of imperialism. It just will take over whatever is happening. You know, a smell comes in. Yes, I smell that. It's, I, I approve of that. It's a very good smell. That's a good smell. I saw that. I'm very perceptive. I'm very good. I really saw right through that. Okay, so now, just to, to finish it, finish this theme, what the Buddha is saying is that the profound meaning of the suffering that the Buddha is talking about, he's not negating the pain that is, seems to be inescapable to being a human being, especially in the body. He's not saying that that doesn't happen. Of course that happens. But what he's saying is there's an element of torment that's added on to all this. That is, once we make any one of these khandas, or all five of them, into me and mine, once there's an attachment to me and mine, then we have dukkha. We have real dukkha. Now, if we can just turn that around, our practice has everything to do with removing the attachment to me and mine from the five khandas. In a nutshell, uh, this may sound presumptuous, but that's that's the essence of the Buddhist teaching. And there's a lot of very beautiful teachings around, all over, you know, good, interesting, profound spiritual teachings. But if it doesn't have this at its heart, it's not Buddhism, as wonderful as it may be. It isn't what the Buddha is talking about. Uh, I feel confident in saying this, because the Buddha says this over and over and over again. And all of the different teachings are coming at this from a slightly different angle. The Noble Eightfold Path, that has to do with the, the way to empty the five khandas of attachment of me and mine. Anything you tell me, sila, moral perfection, the samadhi practice of calming and concentrating the mind, panya or wisdom, they're all the gathering together of energy so that we can examine this mind-body process and first see where the suffering is coming from, the suffering that has an end, and then, through the power of wisdom, little by little, begin to empty the khandas of the attachment to me and mine. And the, the liberation that the Buddha is talking about is that. That is the arhant. For those of you who are newer, this is uh, in this particular lineage. That's just the name for a fully enlightened being. That's someone who... It's not that the five khandas go away after full enlightenment. There's still a life process going on. There's still a body and all the functions that I mentioned, they go on. But they don't bring torment because there's nobody home. There's nobody there to be tormented anymore. And so an arhant is somebody 
whose five khandhas have been emptied of the attachment to me and mine. Now, when Jesus uh, is talking about a rich man and a, a can't get into heaven, that's exactly this. That means that the ego is, we're living in, in the small, constricted space of the ego, which constantly grasps on to everything it can get its hands on and makes it into me or mine. And the Buddhist way of talking about it is just how, how it was just described. Okay, that, that's in a nutshell it. And the person who didn't understand, if you recall, I mentioned someone very new to the practice, what that was bothering them is they thought that suffering in the end of suffering meant that someone was making a claim that somehow if you meditate, no more problems. In a profound sense, that's true. Because what's happening is you're not making a problem out of life, out of just the natural laws unfolding. But it's not saying that you know, your ankle doesn't hurt. You know, or as we age, certain things don't happen to the body. That would be an insult to our intelligence. Of course that happens. And we, we know the Buddha's body died, didn't it? Jesus is dead. Everyone, everyone's body dies. Okay. Um, yes? There are two major questions that came to my thought when you were sure. talking. I noticed at one point earlier you were careful to uh, qualify this the concept of self by saying there's no permanent self, there's no unchanging self. And some of the earlier speakers and or on other occasions here have said, when, when the questions come up, they say, well, that means there's no permanent self, unchanging self. And, but, but uh, <clears throat> does that necessarily mean that, that it's wrong to think that there's a changing self? No, it's not wrong. There because is a I changing self. I'm a different person than when I was five. I'm changing all the time. I'm a different yeah. person than when I was yesterday. Yes. And that's that's not just an illusion, the changing self. Yes, but you understand, by, but just the way you describe it, that means the fact that it keeps changing like that. Uh-huh. So it's not, there, there isn't an enduring core. Mm-hmm. But if you want to use self in the way that you're using it, that's fine. In, in it's, that sense, it's yes. Exaggerate. Yes, it's empty of uh, inherent selfhood. Which is not to say it doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist in quite the way in which people think it exists. So that, that would be fine to talk that way, sure. But it's, but it's an inherent changing self. Yeah, uh, it's going to become a language problem. Yeah. See, and what would help you, in, in my opinion, most of all, is not to have paint with a big brush on a big canvas, but to watch your mind from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And notice that from moment to moment, different images come up, different conclusions about who you are, what you are, memories, and words. Find out what, is, what are the materials, this notion of self. It's just a word, after all. There's a kind of a current in us, a feeling. And that there's a solid person on that motion picture screen. But we know that in a deeper sense, what there are is a rapid succession of frames that give us the illusion that there is a continuous being that's going on. That's one, not a bad analogy to what, what is being said. And if, as you get to know your mind from moment to moment, you'll see that it is uh, forming uh, self-descriptions through images and words and kind of just feelings of currents of feeling, uh, all which seem very convincing. That's part of the problem. It seems very convincing that there is a self there. And in my own practice, a turning point for me in practice was one time where in sitting for a while, it became 
just I just felt like I don't care what the Buddha said or any of these other teachers, Nagarjuna and the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, I don't care what they say, the self is real. It's just solid. I was practically in tears. You know, I just felt like if I know anything, I know that I really exist in a solid way. And it was only when I could f- fully allow myself to fully feel that that I started to be able to, oh, it doesn't. Because before that, I was just, in a sense, thinking what was ideologically appropriate. You know, I'm surrounded by Buddhists all the time. You know, so, oh yeah, empty, what comes and it goes, you know. You know, the main test of our understanding of this, see, it's not a philosophic principle. That's not what the Buddha was about at all. The main test is if we, if it helps us get more free. And emptiness of self is not a bad thing. Uh, what it's saying is that uh, the self is interrelated with everything else. It's part of nature. We're all, uh, we're all interrelated. In other words, the, the, the materials that make up what we think of ourself, they come from the culture, from other people, from our parents. From We use all the materials that are around. There's no something that's autonomous and independent that's doing all of this. But rather, and as you get quiet, you can see it, we're all just in this, there's just an ocean of process. And so, it's, you can talk, as long as you know what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with talking about the self that way. But then, then we understand that there's, because it's not random, I mean, you have, let's say, certain patterns of responses that are uniquely you, and the same for myself. That's how your friends can recognize you. You, know, you, you look a certain way, and you joke a certain way, and so forth. No one's denying that. But when you look at it, you'll see that it's a more complicated thing, that it's all arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And that's all that there is. Okay, now, okay, really seeing that is what liberates a person. And that's the, the letting go of the attachment to particularly that notion, which is the most poisonous one. Now, you don't have to believe that. It's not important. But I don't think we can solve it intellectually, res- resolve it intellectually. That wouldn't be too interesting to me personally. Uh, these notions are put forward in the spirit of each one of you taking it up to investigate. And in order to do that, you have to practice. You can't just read books in the library about what the Buddha said. It won't go very far. Yes. And there are times when you get a deep, deep experience of anatta, of the fact that it's not an idea. You know, it's like clearly seeing that what is happening from moment to moment is the endless succession of arising and passing away of and that, that there is no one to who it's happening. And it's very liberating. On the way, we can get depressed. What do you mean there's no self? You know, and it's, you know, it's just, life is worthless, it's meaningless, I'll commit, commit suicide. But that's a misunderstanding. The truth is, it's a neutral thing. It's just describing the way things are. And it has some very lovely things in it as well. It means that, for example, supposing, uh, it, were, supposing it was not true, supposing that there were this solid core self, we'd be in bad shape. It would be hopeless. We wouldn't even be able to practice. You would just be stuck in just the way you are. I mean, I'm a this. That's, I have to go through life as a this. Then why would we even bother going to psychotherapy and meditating? You know, the fact that things are changing like that is also the possibility of, of freedom. But anyway, a balanced understanding of it is uh, it's not that there's no self. It's that the self doesn't exist in quite the way in which we think it does. Yeah. And, you know, the best way to, to check it is just is to meditate and just see what your mind does. See how it creates self out of things. 
a little bit along the lines that was suggested tonight, is one way to do it. It's, it's, a, it's a time-tested way of doing it. See the five khandhas in action in you. It won't help you if you, this talk is just a menu, that's all. I hope it points to food that really exists. But the only way you'll find out is you're going to have to really look. You had some... No, it's, it's all right. The other point I thought of when you were speaking was when you say um, you're always gonna, there's always going to be pain and so on, but, but isn't that only in the conditioned mm-hmm. state? I mean, the Buddha said there is an unconditioned. Yes. And if you're in the unconditioned state, you're not going to feel any pain, are you? I mean, now you're talking about an absorption. Well, I, I, I understand what you're saying. There's a certain, the experience of nirvana is beyond the senses, yes. That means there's a depth in which there's, there's no problem. Everything is cooled out. But here's the main, how do you get to that? That is the silencing of the attachment to the khandhas. Greed, hatred, and delusion are silenced with enough intensity and enough continuity so that you break through and you taste the reality that is unconditioned. And then, then everything has changed after that. Because even if it just lasts for a short while, the coming back is, you know, everything is looser. Everything is more tentative. The universe becomes more playful. You understand, yeah, life is real, but it isn't. But it is. But it isn't. <laughs> Things become less, less grim or heavy or solid because the illusion of the solidity becomes less harder to keep up, less hard to keep up. Mm-hmm. The same. So the person that's enlightened, would they still have those feelings, but they wouldn't be um, you know, caught up in them? Okay, okay. I, it'd be hard for me to represent since I'm not an arhant. But um, what I can do is suggest this: the torment that the Buddha is talking about mm-hmm. has to do with, let's say, someone you love dies. Okay. And if it's a natural condition that, let's say, there's a certain uh, a grieving response, if that should happen, you can't stop that. I mean, it's like if you prick me, I'm going to bleed. Okay, but if you make me and mine out of that, or it's like I'm grieving, this was my loved one, this is happening to me, you know, etc. And that whole dynamic goes is very different. Then you have torment, and it can last for a very long time. Now, it is also so. Again, I don't know this from experience. That, uh, but, a, but a number of my teachers have spoken, people I trust, that there are people walking this planet. And, you know, you'll meet a few of them in, later on in the summer, earlier in the summer, um, whose understanding of the way things are is so deep that even if a very dear and loved person dies, there isn't a huge amount of suffering because there's such a total, complete understanding as how natural that is. You know, of course, we're all going to die. Is that a shock? It is, folks. We don't want to. Now, what is it that doesn't want to? It's again, we're back to me and mine. The, the process, the fact that if a body is born, that it must die, is obvious. Everything that arises, plants and animals and humans, fish, wherever you look, we see that. That process uh, is ongoing. But the torment comes in because it's the ego that thinks it's the body that is terrified. And it's that which makes a natural process into something that's a really deep problem for us. That's why uh, in some Buddhist 
teachings, they refer to the great death. And the great death is, of course, the death of the attachment to ego. And this, the, the whole thrust of our practice, in a way, is to die before the, is to die to the ego before the physical body dies. Die to, to attachment. So then when the body dies, there's no one there to die. No one there to suffer. Now, I don't want to get into too much of this because it will go beyond, I would like to say, close to our own practice. But you are getting at something that at least you should know is, is a possibility. The unconditioned that was mentioned. That is, we're, everything we're talking about is in the realm of conditioning. That's what we know in life. Now, the unconditioned, nibbana, nirvana, whatever you want to call it, realization, liberation, it's sometimes called the unborn or it's sometimes called the deathless state. That means that in the deepest sense, we were never born and so we will never die. Our body is, gets born for sure and our body dies, but there's something that, has not, that is beyond that. Now, finally, the meditation practice is going in that direction. That's our true home. And the answer to who, to who am I is, no matter what answer you give, none of that's right. How could it be right? You know, you're going to point out some attribute, some characteristic. Okay, let's leave it at that. I mean, if you, you're not going to understand it necessarily intellectually, and if you do, so what? But at least it's helpful to understand that what we're playing with is a rather deep and profound field that we've entered into. Now, you can go as deeply into it as you like. You know, you may want to just calm down. Fine. The center is open to anyone to come here and use it as you see fit. Use it however you want to. But you should understand that the practice is designed for that. It's designed for that. And any movement along the way towards that is beneficial. So let's assume that most of us are not going to necessarily experience a full and permanent liberation into the deathless state. That doesn't mean that what we're doing has no value because every step along the way can be dramatic uh, relief of suffering and torment. Dramatic. And, you know, Western people too. It's not reserved for Asia. It's, if you're a human being, you're going to suffer but if you develop wisdom, you can be free of that suffering. Suffering in the sense that we meant to use it tonight. Anything else on any of your minds about your practice? Yes. It's okay, you have to communicate. Mm-hmm. And um, I try just to breathe into it and try to stay with it and observe it, and it gets worse. Can you see what? Can you see what you're doing there? Can you see what you're attached to in that moment? Yeah, but there's more... Okay, if it were merely just labeling it, that's right. That's the beginning of it because anxiety is not just a, you know, a little a name tag like uh, orange marmalade you know, that you put on a, you know, preserves. It's anxiety. Yeah. Okay, but then just if you could play back what you said, look at all what you were trying to do. Weren't you trying to get rid of it? 
I breathe into it, and I da 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 da. da. Weren't you working hard? Or is it, so there's you, you're, there's an attachment to have the nice, sweet, free flowing breath, and then suddenly anxiety comes. I, is this what you're saying? I'm trying to understand. Yeah. Okay, and then out of the anxiety produces, you know, an alarm goes off, and you know the fire trucks come and the police, and you know we've got to do something about it, and it makes it worse, or it's not helping it, and then then you have a problem. So you can get out fast? Yeah. But you see, you caught fire. The building didn't catch fire. So no matter how close you sit to the... You could run out. You'd still be on fire. Because <laughs> your mind's on fire. But let's come back to what you're saying. And that's, let's see, is there another way to do it? You know, and there is. Is, is there, Do you feel that I understood what you're saying? Because yeah. I want to make sure that I... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um... What if we now, we have a rerun and now you're back and you're following your breath and it's beautiful as, you know, probably many of us in this room, you can become very, very happy human being just sitting quietly doing nothing and breathing, right? Okay. Okay. Now, remember that. Probably you did remember it and you wanted more of it. Okay. And suddenly that's interrupted and then everything that you described happened. Okay. Now, uh, in the language of our practice, what happened was you got attached to pleasant feelings. Or it's Vedana. You know, the breath felt really nice. And it's not for you to beat up on yourself because it's a natural tendency that when we have positive, pleasant Vedana, nice feelings, then we want more of them. See, it's natural and normal. There's nothing aberrant about that at all. And when it's not nice, let's say it's painful, then we don't want that. We want to usher it out the door or you know, extinguish it in some way or get, get away ourselves. Okay, so what happened was you had the nice feelings and then you wanted it to continue, but it didn't. Okay, at that moment, because of that wanting, I want this nice breath, but you got anxiety instead. Or whatever it was that was a departure from what you wanted. Now, if you could begin to see that, that's very much part of our practice. What people tend to do is they get fixated on getting certain states out of the meditation. And then if, let's say, if you didn't have the anxiety, let's say the bell rang a split second before the anxiety it, uh, came. Then you would walk out smiling, right? And saying, I had a good sitting. If someone says, how was it when you went to CIMC? I love that place. I just had a good sitting. Okay, okay, okay. I think I'm going to become a member. I think I'm going to actually become a super lifetime member. <laughs> we need the money. Anyway. Okay, but let's say the bell didn't ring. And so then there's the Vedana that's painful and then there's a disappointment because you wanted it to last but it didn't last and then you bring in your troops and then it just gets worse and then you come out and your same friend says, how was it? I had a rotten sitting. I don't know why I go to that place. You know, every time I go there, yeah, you feel good for like 10 or 15 seconds and then what? It goes away. Okay, so that means... If you follow the, the, the dynamic of what's being suggested is we're going after a pleasant experience using the breath now as the medium to deliver that ple- pleasant experience the same way in which we ran after sex, money, power, prestige, nice house, good clothes, big, you tell me. And so we're going to suffer in the same way too. It's not just by, well, no, how could that be? This is spiritual. I'm practicing Vipassana. Yeah, Vipassana torture is what you're practicing. So that if we're practicing with, with, with that dynamic the same, then of course, because the Buddha is saying it's a law. Now, so how, what can you do? 
So let, now let's have a rerun of another one possibility would be you're breathing beautifully and you're really happy. Enjoy it while it's there. Great. It's inspiring. It will make you want to practice more. It's very healing. Okay. And then suddenly you lose it. And let's say you lose it and there is this disappointment. Okay. Little by little what you can do is your awareness can then let the disappointment happen. And so what you become aware of is how disappointed you are. Now, then you're back on track. Do you see the difference? You're not, you're not making a self out of the disappointment. You're just mindful of the disappointment, and now it can't bite you. It can't burn you. Okay. Uh, now, if you do this enough, what tends to happen is that after a while, while the breath is going beautifully, you enjoy it. And then after a while, you really understand that it's, it doesn't last. It's subject to the law of change. Things change. And so, when it ends, and this takes practice, you're comfortable with the fact that it's over. And what may happen may be you drop into a more restless mode of mind or distracted or whatever that is, and you just, quite naturally, you're with that. Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, now, if you could remember this, it's very helpful. The core kind of skill that's so very important for Vipassana yogis is... To, to remember to bring attention to the way things are. Now, the way things are means the way they are. Sometimes they're nice, long, deep, smooth, beautiful, refined breaths which affect the, you know, the brain and which affect the body and we're sitting there really happy to be here, tears streaming down. That's the way it is. So you become aware of that. And the next moment, that process ends and then you're worrying about you haven't paid your bills. And then there's tension and the breaths become quick and quick and rapid, rapid and short and choppy and fighting their way through and not enjoyable at all. And the body becomes tense and you're tired. And that's the way it is. And then you see it. Let's say if you follow this teaching, then the mindfulness goes to that. And it's after a while you develop this equanimity about being with what's there. Now, that's far more valuable than constantly trying to get good sittings and then feeling disappointed and then getting a bad sitting and then finally getting a good sitting. And that's just like, it's a kind of stock market psychology. So get out of the whole game altogether, if you can. And you can, it's very simple. Just see the game. I don't mean it's easy. And at a certain point, it's very fulfilling, even when you lose the beautiful Vedana of the breaths, the very nice feelings. But somehow the practice rolls on. There's something, it's actually maturing in the practice. And you'll even feel more mature as a person. Because what it means is that no matter what happens in life, it's workable. It's workable. It's okay. You know, like the breath is good, fine. It's not good, I know. It can't be good forever. And that's all right. Do you see what I'm getting at? So that we don't have to get hysterical and then bring in all kinds of extreme measures to correct what's going on. Okay, let me leave you with, uh, this is in regard to your question again. I just remembered something that maybe would be helpful for all of us and then let's give the, the physical body some tea. There was a very great Hindu teacher called Ramana Maharshi, one of the, perhaps one of the great saints and sages of this century. And he died of cancer. 
And towards the end, he had a very serious case of cancer, which lasted a while, and his disciples, in our terms, freaked out. This was in India. And started rushing all kinds of doctors there and uh, were just really terrified and hysterical about it. And Ramana Maharshi kept saying, it's, let it go. It's time for me to die. It's all right. Relax. He was trying to tell his disciples, you know, to give it a rest. Let me go. It's time for this body to slip. It's time to slip away. He had no problems. Okay. And, but they couldn't listen. And they kept feverishly trying to keep his body alive a little longer, which they succeeded in. But at one point, he tried to, what people were feeling for what they thought was his incredible anguish because of the physical pain that he was in from cancer. And he reassured them. He tried to give them a sense of what it was like for him. You know, he was trying to say, please, you're suffering because of you. I'm not suffering the way you think I am. And here's what he used as an image, and maybe this will help all of us approach a certain possibility in life. In small ways, perhaps you've already tasted something like this if you've been practicing for a while. What he said was, if you have a cup of water and let's say you fill it halfway with salt and then you try to drink it, you'll have to spit it out because the salt will be so powerfully coloring the taste of the water, flavoring the taste of the water. He said, but what if you have a huge vat of water and you put in that same amount of salt you know, half a cup of salt, but now you put it in like just a, a huge uh, container of water. You can drink the water because that salt is now dispersed through a, a huge amount of water. You hardly taste it or you taste it, say so little of it that it's drinkable. Now, what he's trying to say is that in the letting go of the attachment to me and mine, you know, you live in a in just more vast space. Literally, the world you live in is not the world that we're living in. It's a much more spacious world. And so when any of these things happen, it's not saying that the body isn't going through the law of cancer and everything that's entailed. But if the person is not attached, and if you're not attached, anytime, perhaps you've experienced this, even if it lasts for a few seconds, when there's no attachment, there is more spaciousness in the mind. Okay, so we're just getting a little bit of a taste. Now, multiply that, perhaps, who knows, I don't know what number to use. 10 trillion, you know, where the mind is infinite, where the mind is the universe, because it's let go of being this, that, and the other. It's not anyone or anything, and it's not trying to get anywhere. It just is. That's, that's, of course, the happiest state. Now, the ego is running around trying to make the ego happy. It's trying to get this and become that. And probably, if you're here, to some degree, it must be, because you know that that really doesn't work too well. We've all put in our time in the ego mill. You know, and I'm not saying don't get degrees or... See, because that's not where the suffering is. And I'm not saying uh, give you all your total bank account away. But what I am saying is become a poor, ma- a poor man in the sense in which Jesus meant it, inwardly. And that means removing attachment of me and mine from the five khandhas. Now that may sound like, well, that doesn't sound very romantic or spiritual or mystical. But you have to do, understand... That Theravadan Buddhism is very, has a very unassuming, plain way of talking about things. Other traditions are more poetic and vivid. and you know, There are some of that in Theravadan Buddhism, but some of it's just very modest and unassuming. It's part of what I love about it. But sometimes I wish it would be more expressive because then you'd get it. You know, we'd all you know, be able to get these evocative 
images. But what they're saying is there's no more torment. It's a negative way of saying that you're completely free and happy all the time. Period. Why don't we get some tea? It'll be a little bit of happiness anyway. (laughs) It's the best we can do here, really. The rest of it's up to each one of us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.